All right, so in March of 2020, does anyone remember what happened in March of 2020? A little thing called a virus. Perhaps you heard of it. A little thing called Corona. Uh, that, was, that, was the month, that was the Sunday after the previous Sunday in February. We were all in here like this, and then there were just five of us in that green dot. And I just want to say this. I enjoy teaching you a lot more than I enjoy teaching empty wooden seats but uh, we, we started a time of the virus, and I remember one of us goes, ah, we'll be over this in a week or so. <laughs> Little did I know. But <clears throat> I felt compelled to begin a sermon series entitled In God We Trust because I had never experienced anything like what corona was and what it did. I'd never experienced that. And, and if we're all being honest, it was a little scary at times. And at other times, it was a whole lot of scary but the faith that we can place in God in moments when the whole world seems out of control and most assuredly our lives, we have to go back and we have to remind ourselves as the saints of God and we have to encourage the lost world that there is a God you can trust in and he is knowing, he is loving, he is kind, he is just, he is powerful, he is for us. And so a a series of sermons have have come from this, and today we're going to begin our next installment. So I just want to run through it. I was going to take a poll this week and see which one you liked best, but I ran out of time. But we started off with Daniel, and uh, when the lions come to dinner, you ever feel like lions just come into your house and just start eating everything? I mean, the world, I mean, life just starts eating you up. And we looked at the road less traveled. That was, I loved that one particularly. I really did. And when the faith that shakes, when Paul and Silas and God intervenes and does incredible things, and we talked about Noah and how God works in and through and beyond the floods of life, we talked about Samson. Man, some days he's a hero and some days he's a zero, but God still loved him and God still used him. Amen? Amen. Isn't that all of us? I mean, some days, you know, you're, you're a 10 and some days you're a 2. And some days you hope to just add up to 12. But anyway... But uh, and then we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, I love that one because that one statement, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't. Wow, let that be said of us. We looked at Hannah. She prayed that God would give her a son, and she promised that if, she would, if God would give her that son, that she would turn and give that son back to him. And we all can pray for something, but it's the follow-up that's the challenge. But Hannah was faithful and faithful to her word we looked at john the baptist a faith worth losing your head over that's the ultimate price for your faith right we looked at joshua the faith that gets around town that's one of my funniest one right there that's pretty good i don't care who you are and uh then we looked at the road to emmaus a faith that causes heartburn i don't know that one's pretty good too and uh then in october we looked at lucifer because we have the courage to take four weeks and teach on lucifer uh, and the faith that failed, you know, he had a lot of faith in all the wrong things. And today we open in our next edition, The Woman at the Well, A Faith That Satisfies. Now, think about this story is this. Uh, it's not a long story, but it's a very powerful story. And one of the things I want to, in our introduction this morning, is to help us see how God works to bring about these types of stories. And so we're going to unpack that. Our story 
will be found in the fourth chapter of John in the first 42 verses. Now, I'm going to read those to us very slowly. (laughs) Not. We don't have that much time. Uh, But that's where we're going to be, and so I would encourage you to take the opportunity to read that passage more than once over these next few weeks as we walk through this encounter. So, One of the things about the Bible is it is not a history book solely, but there is history in the Bible. Today, we discuss history a great deal. We debate history a great deal. A wise person once says, those that fail to remember history are doomed to repeat it. Now, the thing about history is this, we can't change it. Has anyone here have anything in your back in your history you wish you maybe hadn't done? Or maybe you could expunge, expunge, I think that's the proper word, from the, 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 the list. You know, I thank God every day I was birthed and through my teenage years and met Jesus before video and cameras and held, handheld cell phones and all those things. It would be so bad. It would have been, it was terrible enough. I was the king of, hey man, watch this, before the internet. And then you throw in World Star, I may not have survived it. I'm not kidding you. That's for reals. But what I want to help today is as we, as we walk into this conversation with a, a, a lady in the heat of a midday sun around a dusty well, I want you to see something that is very powerful and very meaningful. And I hope for you is very encouraging. I hope that as a student of the Bible, you want to learn the wholeness of it, not just the, 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 the cliff notes. <clears throat> That's what we used to call spark notes back in the day. You remember? Spark notes, those were awesome, man. Uh, cliff notes, anyway, those were great. But, uh, so we're going, I want to give you a little historicity, and I would ask you if I can, but I don't need your permission because I have the microphone and the clicker. So let's go ahead. In Genesis chapter 12, our story begins. You go, wait a minute, we're New Testament saints. We're supposed to be in the book of John. We'll get there. But we're going to begin in the book of Genesis. Why? Because that's where everything began. Verse 12 says, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to a land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be blessed, uh, excuse me, a blessing to others. I will bless those who, uh, excuse me, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. Abraham was, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Let me ask you this. How many of you want to make a major life change at 75? Hey, I want you to leave, how about this? Everything you know at 75. Now, I realize that Abram lived a little longer than our average lifespan, but at 75, you kind of got things lined out, right? You kind of know what you're doing and you're kind of cool with it. Uh, But God steps in and he goes, Abram, he goes, I've got a plan for you. And it's a big plan. And it's a special plan. And I want to invite you to be a part of it. Now, one of the things we need to understand is, was Abram forced to do what God called him to do? The answer is no. No. He could have backed out. He could have avoided. He could have drug his feet. 
We don't know. He could have. Would God have loved him? He would have loved him. But would Abram have experienced what God had planned for him? The answer is no. There is a consequence for disobedience, just like there is a promise for obedience. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we see the Lord appeared to Abram and said, take uh, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord uh, who had appeared to him. So Abram was living in modern day Iraq in Ur. And he's down here by the Persian Gulf where the green star is. And God goes, I've got a place for you. And I want you to move all of your family. Now, this would have been more than one U-Haul truck. Trust me. This is, this is moving the whole kit and caboodle uh, to a place. Where are we going, Lord? Well, just get to moving and I'll tell you. Now, have you, now my bride gets to do that. So we're going to be going away for our anniversary here in a few weeks. And honey, what do you know about what we're going to do? Nothing. She's going to get in the car Sunday evening and we're going to start driving. She's probably going to get to answer the first question. What kind of food do you want? Mexican, Italian, or, or, or Chinese? That's probably going to be the first question. And depending on what her answer is, we begin the journey. Now, my bride also feels so safe in the Lord and with her groom. She doesn't really care about the things around her. So, you know, it's not like she's given to really being a taskmaster on where we're going anyway. But... He was called to leave where he was for a place of promise with the Lord. In order to do that, he would have to go north and then west. And this, this, this swath that I'm showing you here, this is called the Fertile Crescent. Now, tomorrow when you go to work and you bring up this around the coffee shop, the coffee talk, you go, man, isn't it nice that Abram had the Fertile Crescent to go around when he was obedient to God? People go, Fertile Crescent? Man, you're so smart. But what this is, is this is a part of the Middle East that is sustainable for life. You see rivers and you see vegetation and all those things. So he would travel through the Fertile Crescent and this is still the same today. And he would find himself ultimately at a place you may have heard of. We call it modern day Jerusalem. And God says, this is the land, this is your place. And there he honored the Lord. And so he moves from Ur, uh, from the land of Ur through the Fertile Crescent over to modern day Jerusalem. So the number of generations from Abraham, which is Abram, his name was changed a little later, to Abraham, to David. You remember King David? The giant killer, the king, David. Man, you talk about a hero and a zero, that, that's King David. But between Abraham and his promise to his offspring, David, there were 14 generations, approximately 490 years. During this time, this is what the nation of Israel or the kingdom of Israel grew to be. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? It it reaches down into modern-day Saudi Arabia. It reaches over into modern-day Jordan. It reaches up into modern-day Syria. It was a large kingdom. And let me just say this. This isn't all that God has promised Israel. One day, Israel will be larger than this. And then, it was also 14 generations between David to the deportation to Babylon. So, uh, the, the, the southern half of the kingdom gets deported to Babylon 
uh, later on in the history because they were disobedient to God. And then another 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon or the captivity to the Messiah, to Jesus. And so <coughs> you add all those generations up and it gets you right in the neighborhood of 1,500 years between the time that Abram was faithful and obedient to God's command and the time of Jesus and the encounter we're going to be studying. Approximately 1,500 years. But I wanted you to see that God was in it, working through it. In 722, a little nation called uh, uh, Syria and the Assyrians conquered the kingdom of Israel and deported many of the residents uh, to the surrounding nations. Not only did they deport Israel, Israelites, but they imported other nationalities. If you're a conquering people and you want to make sure the conquered people are submissive to you, you dilute who they are. You dilute their language, you dilute their culture, you dilute their history, you dilute uh, all these things. And so what happened was the king of Assyria took Jews and took them out of their land into other places. Typically, it started with the most educated and, and, and the gifted, but not exclusively. And then he brought in other conquered peoples and placed them in the nation of Israel. And so we have this, this diluting of God's people and the culture and the beliefs and all of those things. And that's problematic because we're going to see it causes some real cultural rifts here in a moment. Eventually, the eventual outcome was that in Samaria, there was, a, there was a new population that merged together and social identity developed that was different than the Hebrews. And um, 10 of the tribes, there were 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of the tribes were carried off and they are cons they're still roughly considered the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Now, let me say this. In the book of the Revelation, God brings the 12 tribes back together. There's a plan, there's a purpose, and there's a deliverance of the 12 tribes, amen? So God has not lost the 12 tribes. Man has temporarily misplaced them, but God knows. And one day, God will bring back together to the land all 12 tribes because God is a covenant-keeping God. And he told Abram, I will be your God and your people shall be my people. God doesn't renege on a covenant Amen. regardless of human history and regardless of human sinfulness. So there's 10 tribes out here and one day God will gather them back to the land. So Israel is the biblical name given to the patriarch of Jacob. So Jacob was wrestling with an angel all night. Uh, uh, well, um, before his name was changed, he was wrestling and the angel touched his hip and dislocated it and he blessed him with the name Israel. So the name Israel comes through the patriarch of Jacob, his name change. Jacob's descendants became known as Israelites. They formed 12 tribes. Later they founded the kingdom of Israel from which the name of the modern day state of Israel is derived. This is a picture of downtown Tel Aviv, one of the hippest, coolest places on the Mediterranean. And uh, so Tel Aviv means hill of spring. And uh, it's, it's kind of a cool place. 
the word Palestine, you hear that a lot, don't you? When you hear Israel and Palestine, you, we're having a little issue. I don't know if you're hearing, but uh, a 12-year-old boy uh, took it upon himself to shoot some Israel, Israelites uh, who is from the Palestinian side of this argument. It's a terrible thing. That's a terrible thing going on over there. But the, pal- the, the word Palestine uh, has been with us since the time of the Romans. The Holy Land, when you hear that phrase, the Holy Land refers to modern-day Israel, the Palestinian territories, and by some definitions, areas closer to them. So when you hear the word Holy Land, it typically refers to Egypt. It refers to Palestinian areas. Down at the bottom left, you have the Gaza Strip. In the middle there to the east, you see the West Bank. And on the north, you see the Golan Heights. And it also can include a portion of Jordan because there's, there's biblical things there and, and other places. But when you hear the phrase Holy Land, that's typically what it's speaking of. And it is literally the hinge pin in which three of the world's greatest faiths swing upon. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. All of them have history and claim and value of a little place called Jerusalem. And where was Jerusalem first brought onto the scene? When Abram left and followed the Lord's commands. How important is Jerusalem? Well, it's been in God's plans a long time. And Abram was a part of those. And now we see uh, modern-day Holy Land. So let's get to the Bible, Jimmy, shall we? John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. This is John the Baptist, if you recall, a faith worth losing your (laughs) head over. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back to Galilee. So what we see here is there's some religious resentment. Now, that's just so uncommon. That doesn't happen today, does it? Josh, you did a good job earlier today. Yeah, there is religious resentment. We (laughs) Okay, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. The ministry of Jesus was constantly under scrutiny. Constantly under scrutiny. It was under scrutiny from those who were followers of John. John the Baptist. They loved John. They loved his preaching. They loved his teaching. They weren't so hip with the way he dressed and maybe the way he he smelled because he was a little earthy. But they loved John. And they thought there's nowhere else but in John, with John. And And they said, hey, man, you know, this Jesus, he's cutting into John's Twitter time. He's losing followers. And so John's disciples, as as foolish as it was, were giving constant scrutiny to Jesus as his ministry. And then there's the religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders were in constant scrutiny of Jesus because of what he was teaching and how it was affecting the way they had always done things. Now, let me say this. It is, there's, no, there's no sin in doing something uh, because we've always done it that way. There's not a sin in that. But there's also can be a sin if you always do it one way and in spite of you know, maybe making needed alterations. And so 
what happens here is Jesus is saying, listen, we, we need to do things differently. And those who are established and long in the tooth and insecure, and, and some of them were not biblically minded, not godly driven, and they wanted to hold on to the things they had always done because it brought them a sense of power, position, and possessions. So the religious leaders, and then just the good old-fashioned unbelievers, you know, like the guy on the cross next to Jesus, hey, you say you're the Savior. If you are, then save us and save yourself. Good old-fashioned unbelievers. And then at times, even his team scrutinized him. And uh, sometimes they were, they were in opposition to Jesus and, and what God was trying to do. They didn't quite understand or they didn't necessarily like. If you recall when Jesus was going to go uh, to, the, to the family of Lazarus and one of the disciples says, well, we'll go with you because we'll just all die together because they were afraid of dying. What an encouragement. Come on, Jesus, let's all go die together. Sounds great. So Jesus' ministry was constantly under scrutiny, so that was nothing new. John 3 says this, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Wait, there was an argument among uh, religious people? Say it's not true. <clears throat> they came to John and said, Rabbi, that man, <laughs> I could just hear it, that man, even with the finger wag, that man, that man who was, oh, look, just a little aside, what are you two doing? I just, I want you to know I see what you're doing. <clears throat> Over the ceremonial washing, they came to John and said, Rabbi, that man that was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. He's got a bigger church than us. He's got a bigger small group than us. Let's look at some free stuff real quick, shall we? The Jews of all the ancient people were very, very, very mindful of their sinfulness and how that sin played into the relationship and the intimacy with God. Let's look what the Bible says. <clears throat> your iniquity have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongues mutter wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. Oh man, could it be any worse? Yes, it can. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's nest. Their feet rush into sin. Their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their paths. Our offenses are many in God's sight, and we acknowledge our iniquities. These are all found in Isaiah's writings. They were keenly aware of who they were, and God was keenly honest with who they were. And so cleansing, both physical and ceremonial, was introduced to the children of Israel in Leviticus. And those that were going to lead in religious services those who were going to follow spiritually the Lord and those who had come to worship would go through a process of a ceremonial cleaning. Now, in Judaism, there's two types. There's a full body and then there's a washing of the hands. And so each Jew would be required to do these things. Now, as, as New Testament saints, we know that uh, being dunked in a baptistry does not forgive us of our sins, Amen. 
only Jesus. However, our being baptized is a sermon unto itself. We walked in our sinful ways, we died to ourselves, and we were made new and resurrected in Jesus. Amen? And so we follow that same process, not that it saves us, not that it makes us more holy, but it's an act of submission and testimony. So we carry that on even today in the church, but the Jews had these two symbols, very important, very powerful, very meaning. And the mikvah purification was required by all the Jews. And when they would come to Jerusalem to be a part of celebrations or to worship in the temple, they all had to go through this ceremonial bath. Now, the great thing about history is this. As God, un, un, as God reveals it to us piece by piece, it simply more and more identifies with and supports what the Bible has taught us all along. Um, <clears throat> Hebrew University's Benjamin Mazar, around the wall adjacent to Herod's temple, uh, has found hundreds of ceremonial baths, just like this one, where they would come in and they would go through the ceremonial bath to get ready to go and worship. There's hundreds of these. Why? Well, because the Bible said this is what you need to do and this is what they did. And now history and archaeology support what? What the Bible says. And it gives us a clear case of history. This is what the Bible said they did. Now history is showing us this is what they did. What a, what a fun thing. John 3 goes on. This, to this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. So we see this religious exemptment. Uh, the disciples of John were expecting and calling for believers to pick sides. Does that sound anything like today? If you're not for me, you're against me. We, our culture as a whole has, has so divided, you know, we all pick our corners, and if you're not in my corner, then I might have to fist fight you. And we see it in Washington, we see it in our culture, and you know what? If we're not careful, we'll see it in church. And Josh touched on that in the 9 o'clock hour. Listen to me. Our friends, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, um, and, and others, they are not our enemy. They are not our contestants. We are not competing against them, amen? We are a part of the capital C church. Now, as long as we can stand and agree upon the unnegotiable truths of Scripture, we're family. Now, we may not be family. We want to live together for years. Josh, you're right. Hey, that's just the way love goes sometimes. But but we are family. And as it was at the time of John, as it is today, oh man, well, you just got to pick what, you know, I, I could tell you my philosophy is this, is I want you where God wants you. And if ALF isn't where God would have you, then let's find it because that's what's best for all of us. The capital C church and John's uh, disciples, and, and let me just say this, I'm not going to say Jesus' disciples were down with this a little bit too, but... Uh, but it's, it's highlighted for John's disciples. But we want to pick sides. 
Can I say this? I believe one of the greatest tools of the adversary is division. If he can just plant the seed, we'll do the rest. Has our nation ever been more divided than it is right now? No, no, no. I mean, we can find a fight anywhere, anytime. The church should be striving to walk closer together instead of striving and walking further apart. John, uh, John rightly reminds them of his place and his purpose. John was the forerunner. John's not the savior. He's the messenger. And John, I'm gonna, this is modern day, I'm going to say this. John knew his lane and he stayed in it. Amen? Hey, sometimes we just need to know our lane. And we just need to keep it in there. Listen, I love being your pastor. It's one of the greatest privileges of my life. And if it's God's will, I'll do it till God calls me to that great place. But I'm just a man saved by grace. Who knows a man that every person and every man should know. That's all I am. John knew his lane and he stayed in his lane and he taught his followers. Division among believers can be extremely, say the word extremely with me, extremely dangerous. John goes on, and John goes on and it says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and with full joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Amen? Whoo! That's hard to do, isn't it? Human nature likes to become greater. Now, there's a few of you that have the spiritual gift of humility, but that's not all of us. Like this guy. Have you ever been to a wedding? Of course you have. Have you ever seen one of the bridal party not stay in their lane? Uh-huh. You know, if you're a guest, you're sitting there and you're going, hey, bro, it's not about you. Now, as the man who gets to attend a lot of weddings and gets the best seat in the house, by the way, for free, I see and I hear and I watch a lot of bridal party and I think to myself, hey, sis, it's not your day. So one of the first things I do is I remind the bridal party of why you're here. You are all privileged guests. This isn't about you. Guess what? We can do it without you. There's only three of us that need to be here. Him, her, and me. That's all we need. And Jesus makes four tires. We're ready to roll. But what John was saying is, listen, the bridegroom, which is the church, belongs to the, I'm sorry, the bride belongs to the bridegroom, and the bridegroom is Jesus. It's not John. And he says, listen, guys, he says, don't get distracted by what you're not. Don't get distracted by what's not real. I tell the bridal party, I say, listen, if you ever wonder where to put your eyes when you're in a wedding, because everyone gets weird when they get up in front of people. I don't understand why. I do it every week. But they get up there and everyone's like, man, where's, where my hands go, you know? And you tell them, no keys, no cell phones, nothing in your pockets, because guys, man, they'll be digging holes to China in their pockets. Now, ladies, it's easier for you because you usually have a bouquet and you just death grip that thing. 
and, and, I, and they're like, well, where do I put my hands? You know, I mean, and I said, well, man, it's, it's either nicely like this or behind you. Behind you gets a little tough. You know, it looks a little military-ish, but it's okay. And, and here's the key. Wherever the bride is, that's where you look. If the bride's at the back of the hall, that's where you're looking. If the bride's standing here in front of me, that's where you're looking. Guess what? The attention is what? On the bride and the groom. Not the bridal party. Not the parents as much as you've paid. Not the guests as much as most of you didn't want to be here, but you're here anyway for the snacks. John says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. And Jesus is the bridegroom. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand this, that this thing called the church doesn't belong to us. We belong to it, but it doesn't belong to us. Too many times we spend our time and our energy fighting over the ownership of something that's not ours. I want you to know I hold the reins of ALF with open hands. You know why? I don't own it. God has been gracious to me and placed the reins of this beautiful fellowship into my hands for a season. And if he tarries his return, one day those reins will be passed into the hands of someone else. Why? Because the bride belongs to the groom, not those who attend. Amen. Amen. Woo. I am preaching to myself. Now, here we go. Oh, we got to get. It's quick. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar. Now, the plot of ground, uh, near the plot of ground where Jacob had given uh, to his son, Joseph, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. So here's a few quick hits. One, Jesus was traveling by foot. Two, Jesus got hot and tired. Three, he sat down because he needed some water. Jesus is all God and all humanity, amen? And it's hot in the Middle East, if you don't know. Midday is hot. And where they were, it was hot. So the interesting thing, let me go back because I didn't highlight that. I was having too much fun with the word hot. Um, Scripture says he had to go. He had to go. Wait, this is Jesus who is God incarnate. But he had to go through Samaria. Huh. Well, why did he have to go? See, it's the little things that make the big difference. And this is why that question is so interesting. He had to go through Samaria. So this is uh, modern-day Israel. You see the Sea of Galilee. It's the little blue dot to the top of the screen. Down at the bottom, you see the Dead Sea, the little blue dot at the bottom of the screen. The Jordan River is that squiggly line that runs between them. Now, here's the thing. You remember, Abram came from way over there to way over here. And now, 1,500 years later from his arrival, here's Jesus. But in between there, there was some things. And one of those things was the deportation of Jews and the importation of non-Jews. And they intermingled and they intermarried and their culture became non-Jewish culture or not a pure, air quote, Jewish culture. So what happened were those who were not deported, the Jews who considered themselves pure, had a great disdain for the Samaritans, the half-breeds as they would call them. 
And so to go through Samaria as a Jew was a no bueno thing. No bueno. <laughs> I just thought of a great illustration, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, and not only would a good Jew not go through Samaria, but a rabbi most assuredly would not because it would make you ceremonially unclean. And guess what? Tongues wag. But the scripture said, what, Ronnie? He had to go. I mean, was I-30 over Ray Hubbard shut down for construction? Did he have to go via McKinney and 380? Why did he have to go? So, there were typically three routes used by the Jews to pass around Samaria. So let's look at them very quickly. The one to the east, the red line, you'd see they'd come down off of the mountain where Jerusalem is to the Jordanian River, and they would go north up the Jordanian River Valley. Now that's good because you have shade, you have vegetation, you have water. It's probably one of the most direct routes. That's a great route. You could stop and have a picnic. You might take a little dip, you know. That's a great route. Or they would come down off the mountain of Jerusalem and they would head to the west, out to Caesarea. They could go to the port city, see what's coming in on the ships, see the ocean, maybe take a dip. That's a, that's a nice way to go too because you get down off the mountains, it's nice and it's flat and it's, it's not so hard. And then there's the middle route that would take you directly through Samaria, directly through a town called Sakar. Now, the problem with that is you go right directly through Samaria. And the Bible says that Jesus had to go. It's not that he didn't have options, and it's not that he didn't have even more easier options geographically, distance-wise, culturally. He had options, good options, logical options, acceptable options. But the cause upon which Christ came trumped all of the human options, and it was this. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because his purpose statement compelled him. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. The good news has always been a go and tell commodity, amen? We get too hung up on the come and see. Listen, I hope you're inviting people to church. And I hope part of the reason you invite them to church is you go, man, I've got a pastor. I'm just telling you, you're not going to sleep on him. I hope you invite people to church. But greater than that, I hope you're sharing your faith and your testimony and your love of the Lord out there in your mission field. <clears throat> don't, please don't ever fall into the, well, I'll let the professionals do it. I want you to know in your mission field, you're the professional. You are the expert. 
But the gospel has always been a go and tell. Jesus could have set up First Baptist Church Jerusalem and go, hey, if you want to hear, come on in. But no, Jesus had to go through Samaria. (coughs) To some, this will look like a random encounter in the middle of nowhere. A band of Jewish guys just trying to get to Galilee in the midday sun and they stop for a little snack and refreshment and a rest and there just happened to be a woman at a well. Now, I think of this encounter in my own life very quickly. So some years ago, I had the privilege of going to China and I spent the better part of three weeks in China with our missionary partner, Steve Shermer. And from China, I had decided I would take the opportunity to go visit, visit our sponsor, um, Awana Club in Indonesia. It's only a short six-hour jaunt. And then if you're in the neighborhood, and so I flew from Hong Kong to Jakarta, Indonesia. That's a different world. Spent a few days there and was on my way back. I was flying from Jakarta, Indonesia to Greenville, Texas, all in one leg from Jakarta to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to LA, LA to Dallas, and then woohoo! <clears throat> so I arrive in Hong Kong, one of the largest airports in the world, and I'm walking, and there's people everywhere. And you know how that is when you're walking in a crowd and you don't know anyone, you don't really look because you don't know anyone, you don't want to look like that guy who's staring. You know, you know someone walks up and says in Chinese, hey, why you mean mugging me? but I'm walking and I'm walking and I'm walking and then as if the clouds back up and my eyes go there's a face of a dude that I know and 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 just like you I went like that because I'm thinking what are you doing in China and and what was funny is his head went and he's thinking well what are you doing in China and we walked up to each other and we, we had a conversation very brief because both of us were going different directions. He was going in and I was going out. And, and I thought to myself, what's the odds of that? I'd have bought a Chinese lottery ticket if I could have found one. <coughs> Some would say that was a random encounter. Brothers and sisters, I don't believe in random encounters. I believe in providential meetings. Now, what God's providence in that meeting was, I'm not sure. I hope we were an encouragement to one another. (coughs) But I believe in divine appointments. Jesus had to go that way because he had a divine appointment. And when did that divine appointment get set? Well, there was a guy named Abram. See what I'm saying? You see, the reason we can trust God is he's always at work. If Abram had not come and been obedient, then the nation of Israel would not have been built and you just start walking it down, right? Wow, wait a minute. You talk about making an appointment a little bit ahead. Call your doctor and go, hey, I'd like to make an appointment for when? 15 years from now. Try 1,500 years. I want you to start looking at your encounters not as accidental encounters, but how about divine appointments? It could be for you or it could be for them or it could be for both of you. I tell you, I've had 
the Lord just astonishes me. Just astonishes me. And I want you to know if you'll keep your head up and your heart open, you'll be astonished at the divine appointments that you'll have the privilege of encountering. For the next few weeks, I want you right now to make an appointment to meet me here. And we're going to look at how Jesus transforms the life of this woman that he meets at the well. The life of this woman that he made an appointment with over 1,500 years earlier. You see, our God doesn't work inside a clock. That's the reason the scripture says that while you were yet enemies, while I was yet an enemy, what Christ died for me. Why? Because Jesus knows me. He knew me on the cross and he knows me today and praise God. Jesus knew this woman before he had to go through Samaria. He knew this woman from eternity past. And I hope, one, that that just blows your ever-loving mind. But I hope it also encourages you that no matter where we are or where we're going, God's already there. And he has divine appointments with each and every one of us. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for this day. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we thank you for his obedience to your call and your purpose and your plan. Father, we thank you for Abram. Lord, who at, a, who at the age of 75 left everything he knew for everything you promised. And Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to that promise, even in the light of disobedience. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist who knew his purpose, Lord, and maintained his lane as the messenger for the Messiah. Father, today, we as the church, as the saints of God, have the privilege of that same thing, Lord. We are the Messiah's messengers. Lord, help us today to rejoice in your faithfulness and your goodness. Father, help us to rejoice today in, in the fact that you allow us to be a part of your plan. Father, let us rejoice today that as we go into our mission fields, Lord, we're the expert on who Jesus is in our lives. Lord, we may not be an expert on everything, but Lord, we know who he is and what he's done and what he means to us. And Father, let us always be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us. Father, we thank you today for that divine appointment wherever it was that we met you on your terms. Father, I thank you for that January morning on the front steps of Park Street Baptist Church, Lord, when Jesus came through a little town called Greenville and met a lost and wayward man who desperately needed a Savior. Lord, I thank you for that. And I thank you as I look into my history how you were graciously orchestrating that divine encounter. Father, help myself and help each and every one of us see life as divine encounters in our mission field. Lord, bless your people that they in return might be a blessing 
And Father, may you and you alone be glorified for all these things we ask. And all of people's, God's people said, amen.